This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to The Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Welcome back, listeners, to the Humane Podcast. Today, we are going to talk all about ethics. And ethics has been a topic that the entire world has been up in storm over, everything from COVID to protests to data science. And today, we have an ethics expert. We have Ben Byford. Ben is the host of the Machine Ethics Podcast. He's an AI teacher, ethicist, and games developer joining us from the United Kingdom. Ben, thanks for joining us on Humane Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Well, Ben, it's been a wild ride of 2020 so far, looking between COVID and protests and everything with data science and ethics. What are some of the early signals that you see emerging that are of interest today? It's really good that we're talking about ethics. I think it has really flourished, in my opinion, in this industry, technology industry, and kind of the news and and, um, general parlance that people were talking more about, you know, how we share data. And that's really come into the fore when we're talking about different ways of tracking individuals within the COVID situation. So that's a big question and a moral quandary which we're battling with. How much information do we give to organizations, governments about our movements. And that's always been the case, but we're now having to think differently in the face of a pandemic about how how much we can give away and, and what kinds of things can be done with that data. But also we had last year this kind of introduction to the face tracking. So we had a, a lot of kind of new information about how face tracking is being used and how it evolved technology-wise to be this kind of force in the general public. You know, citizens could just be tracked 
generally in the environment, whether it's by police officers or in other means. Um, and these images are being used against mass databases and tracked and stuff like that. So it's really good that we're talking more about ethics and in this digital world that we've built, because it sounds silly, but you know we live in this global situation and we can't just move to Mexico, you know, <laughs> you, you know, there's very little for us to do to get out of um, the situation we're building. So we better build it in the, the right way or the way that we want to live. You know, it's so interesting that Ben, you're sharing all these unique cases that we've seen rise in 2020. Of course, contact tracing with COVID. We've seen, you know, Singapore, China, the European Union coming out with different systems, even in the US with Google and Apple. Contact tracing, I know, has been in everyone's mind because no one wants to die from COVID. But then do people want to give up their data to be healthy? And where will the data be used? So what's your take on giving up our data privacy or data rights for this shared contact tracing? It's a really good question. Um, so my instinct is that we already do that. Like we, we are already partially on the way there. So if you're taking that stance, then you're really concerned with of whom you're giving that data and can they be transparent about how they're using that data and have that data secure and be able to delete that data when appropriate. And it's very hard to actually um, believe or have trust in organizations when they say these things. So we could give Google our information about who we see, where we go, and they can correlate that with GPS data, as well as other things um, like Wi-Fi data and signals and anything that they can use to coordinate who is within the same building, for example. All these sorts of things come together. And they could say that they're doing certain things with our data, but it comes down to signaling this information and also the trust involved within society to actually accept that information is going to be carried out and correct. And traditionally, uh, we've lost a lot of trust in these organizations because again and again, they do some strange or let's not say evil, but a kind of things which are maybe not in our interest and are maybe in their own interest. Uh, and that's to do with... Um, how organizations run uh, for shareholders, but also how um, you know people operate in the world. So I think it's a, a trust issue with technology. So both kind of sides of the coin. And it's a very difficult one to square. I don't necessarily trust these big organizations. I'd prefer to trust my own government, but again, it's difficult to trust because obviously they will farm out this information to probably a third party and then I have to trust the third party. So, yeah, I think it's a good thing to be doing, but the trust issue is a big one. Right. And I think when we look at the trust issue, I mean, again, we're seeing in the United States, like Apple and Google collaborating together on contact tracing and a lot of third party providers where trust has been destroyed over the years. We've seen how with, you know, Banjo and Clearview AI, some of these face tracking apps that you've talked about previously, you know, not only on the Machine Ethics podcast, but the work that you're doing, that a lot of this trust has been eroded. And we're seeing now, you know, Google saying, we are here, please trust us. We want to be the caretakers of your health. But then, of course, the news keeps coming through its cycle where it was recently revealed 
revealed that with Google Analytics, the incognito privacy mode browser has not been as incognito as people thought it has been. In fact, millions of people who had trusted Google with their privacy were made aware that the data cookies, although they weren't stored on their local machines, they were still going back to Google servers. And I know this is probably something that you may have an opinion on because you know, you're know you based in the United Kingdom where the GDPR passed. You know That's been a whole process from 2016 to today. And the US is still grappling with what our version will be. But this incognito mode, I mean, this is probably like the biggest GDPR flag I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, I think whether the America have a, a similar uh, legislation put in place is, uh, in my opinion, re- irrelevant because, you know, the internet is cross-boundary, cross-continental. Uh, so if you deal with anyone outside of your own jurisdiction, your own country, then you will fall into someone else's legislation. And it just so happens that GDPR is one of the most robust that we have at the moment to deal with data. So unless you are a small shop working in a small locality, then you're going to be affected. So just getting that out of the way. But yeah, I mean, the technologies we have are very open and open to exploitation, especially the providers. I mean, there was a time when uh, Google didn't have a web browser, you know, Um, There's funny things have happened since then. And people like Zoom have done some pretty interesting and awful things technology-wise to make our data available to anyone who wants to see it. And they are saying that Google Chrome is the default browser, for example. And there are many other browsers, like I use Firefox and, and other browsers which try their very best to look after your data. But it is a problem. And for me, as a web developer, you know, I can just implement some stuff to snoop on people who come to my websites or use my tools. That is a power that I have. And really, it comes down to making that power transparent. And so it's kind of um, an educational piece there. Can can we educate citizens to the power of technologies and the use of technologies in a way that they know enough? But also, can we educate people to do the right thing? You know, if you're sitting down making something, you could do things to elicit behavior change. You just could. You know, uh, Facebook and Instagram and people like this uh, do this sort of thing all the time. And they also do research on us all the time. Should we be doing these things is the question. And how do we know what the right thing to do is? And that's where all these ethical questions come in. So... I have this real belief that we should actually spend more time within our educational system reflecting on some of these problems and maybe even reflecting on them in uh, context. So we can talk about them, especially in secondary school in the UK, it's uh, secondary um, in the States, it's um, middle school, right? Yeah, yeah. So we go, our primary school would be elementary and then we go to middle and high school. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And these kids... Growing up in a you know augmented rea- you know reality existence now, where they can be bullied at afar, they can bully other people at afar, they can be you know poked and prodded into different ways constantly all the time. So I don't really have any answers to that specific problem, but I think that we should be teaching people to reflect on the situation within our educational institutions, so that we are priming people who are. In going to be making this stuff in the future, to be making design decisions and technical decisions that they can implement it in full respect of other people and for the respect of the environment. And I'm not sure we've seen much of that traditionally. 
I know there's a lot of lots of things we can talk about, um, lots of issues, but we just need to be uh, more mindful about our impact on other people in the world, I think. I think one of those big challenges that we saw in 2020 has been the eruption of support for George Floyd and these protests, how they've just emerged on social change around accessible and equitable outcomes. And this isn't just for looking at education, but society as a whole. And of course, it's been in the United States bubble of what social change looks like. But that is part of the conversation that we've seen. There's been conversations with leaders from Teach for America and Girls Who Code who have also come out saying that education is not necessarily a pipeline problem, but it is all about uh, quotas. And it's all about understanding that there is equity that is not being seen. And I wanted to share this story with you right now about what we're talking about with Black Lives Matter, because I think it is systemic in society. You know, Ben, you've shared about Zoom and the Zoom software, and I found their use case the same systemic racism that we're seeing in society. Zoom uh, announced on May 7th that they acquired Keybase, an end-to-end encryption startup, to provide the security for their users. And then they later came out in the beginning early stages of summer 2020 that they're going to bring the end-to-end encryption into their product, but only for paid users which means for the users who cannot have these accessible, equitable outcomes from non-traditional backgrounds and low socioeconomic status, sorry, we're not going to secure your data. We're still going to sell the data. We're going to put it on Google. We're going to track your data and monitor that. I'm not sure how that's priming society for these smart design decisions. Where are we going wrong? I mean, can you share some insight of what you've been seeing from Black Lives Matters, from Zoom, from some of these issues? Are they by design to be non-ethical? Yes and no. I think the Zoom example is a really good one because I think that Zoom are doing the utmost to make me hate them at the moment. I think the epitome of where we're going wrong with how we build and market technology, I don't think they're going out there to say, if you don't pay, we're going to sell your data, track your data. They're not going to say that. They're going to say, for those who pay, we have a higher level of uh, feature set. And part of those features is if you're worried about encryption and your data privacy, then you have to pay us. But really, we should all be worried about these things, right? We should all be worried about our uh, security as citizens and our data privacy as citizens, because we don't necessarily want to tell everyone what we're talking about. And that comes into our discrimination issue. So you can be discriminated in different countries for all sorts of different things. And you might not want to tell your neighbor or your government certain things about your person because those things aren't deemed in that country normal or acceptable or legal. So there's there's many reasons why you, you would want to keep your privacy and your security intact. And if you're using these, it's almost like you're using a utility and you, the utility doesn't respect the user. So some things with the internet, I just believe that they should be taken up by nonprofit organizations or quangos or governments. Email is a distributed technology and it's becoming non-distributed at the moment quite rapidly. And that has wide and worrying effects on our autonomy as citizens and human beings. Um, most of our email will go through Google or Microsoft now, right? 
So that's a problem. Uh, and what once was a decentralized thing is now becoming centralized. Zoom is another way we communicate, and that's a centralized platform. And they do not have any respect for you, and they don't. And they do seem to have a dubious way of implementing what is, a, in my mind, a utility. And there's no reason why other organizations can't do this sort of thing in a non-profit way and enable us to communicate as a community in a way that we want to, to get things done, right? We are recording this podcast online using, um, you know, screen sharing and, and voice, um, things like this. There's like hundreds of these things. So why don't we just make one really good one and you don't have to pay for it or you have to pay for your taxes or whatever. And there's certain things within the internet environment, which I think should be like this, but have traditionally not been the case. Just internet access generally is another one of these things. Um, if we're saying water and electricity is um, a general need, a civil need, I think the internet is certainly up there as a civil need. And I know in the States, you have some terrible internet <laughs> connections in lots of places. And it's bizarre to me that isn't a, a citizen requirement to have some of these things as part of a taxpaying situation makes me feel bad that we are getting exploited for a small amount of people for using things which are quite inane and quite enabling for us to just exist at the moment. It's hard to exist within COVID without using Zoom, which is annoying for me because everyone's using it. Um, it's quite hard to exist without using uh, Google Hangouts and, and Gmail or at least going through those servers. So my mere existence as a human being at the moment in the West, maybe less so in, in China, it just it requires these certain things. And I think we should look at those requirements and think how we can adjust them to make ourselves live in an environment which is more equitable. And like you were saying, actually can enable more people to be able to work, uh, to, to live and be more fulfilled. So that was a mini rant about that. Sorry. <laughs> You know, but I think it's so timely because what we've seen, at least in the States, is between throttling internet and net neutrality, it is not commonplace that all citizens have the right to internet access. But I think COVID and a lot of these demonstrations have shown that the right to internet access could be or should be universal. And, you know, Europe has made a lot stronger strides there than the U.S., and I think that's because in the United States, trust is broken. It is a broken process. And we've seen even in the government sector where companies have chosen to have licenses for both Microsoft Teams and for Zoom. Microsoft Teams has been used for the private domain because they've known for a while there has been support for end-to-end -end encryption, and they're only using Zoom for the public domain. So there is a clear divide that trust is broken, but I feel that from what I've seen that Europe has begun to figure out how to repair trust and that GDPR has been part of that solution. What have you seen in these first couple years where GDPR has been mainstream in both the UK and the European Union? It's been really interesting, actually. I think it's been a real smack in the face. Um, lots of companies have been scrabbling around trying to make sense out of what this means for how they operate. And one of the major things is that there used to be this kind of working at some of these companies, there used to be this kind of default mode of operation where 
you have some sort of technology and you just hang on to as much data as you as you can you know when they're using our app or when people are using our website we can get x y and z from them and we'll just store that and it doesn't matter what we do with it later we'll probably do something with it later we don't really know what we're going to do we'll just store it and that really can't be a default behavior anymore as you're building technology. You have to require consent under GDPR. You have to stipulate usage under GDPR. And you have to give terms of access under GDPR. So if you are to be amended or deleted for your data or have your data shared to the user on what specific data they have on them, all that has to be implemented. And if you don't implement that, then you could be, you know, taken to court and, and sued a lot of money. So there's been a real kind of sea change on what the default modes of operation are within the design build of technology. And that can only be, um, in my mind, a good thing. It's obviously a transitional period. And I think we're still transitioning. Uh, for anyone who still sees cookie notices on their websites, there are ways of building websites without cookies <laughs> or, or without 12 cookies and things like this. So there are kind of like is a transition into, oh, okay, the old world actually isn't compatible with now what people are saying about uh, privacy and data protection. So we're kind of still moving there and not everyone's kind of worked out um, the solutions which um, we can use or the ways of operating that we can use. Maybe we can only store data that we actually need. Maybe we can ask permission for that data. Maybe we can actually use it for the, for the benefit of that user. Often data is taken and, and used for um, other purposes, for sale or um, put into a big bucket and made into some sort of data store that other people can contribute to and sell on as some sort of third-party service. So there's kind of like these insidious things that have been happening for many years behind the doors, which basically, if you're operating in now, you have to tell us because it's bad you know and and you can you can get sued a lot of money again so i think um having started out my career in a company which sort of did this sort of stuff my first ever job was in the digital world digital world in technology was building sites and um doing some scraping activities and producing large data sets to send um marketing materials to and those sorts of companies just can't operate in the same way as they did. I mean, they can do the same sort of things with permission now, but it's not a given. And and the technology can do do all this stuff automatically. But again, it comes down to what should we be doing? And now it's illegal to be doing some of that stuff. But within the ethics of AI and the ethics of technology and kind of the ethics of mass automation, we have to really go beyond uh, what is, you know, under GDPR, beyond what is um, legal, illegal, and think about, again, what is it the world we're, we're making, uh, what is equitable to most people, what is useful to people, and what isn't just useful to shareholders. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And making the world by design is seeing how we can bridge the gap of this equitable and accessible conversation. I think what both of us know as being leaders in the technology space is that technology always moves faster than governance. And so what we've seen with GDPR is definitely a reactionary, but now helping support citizens for their rights. But you mentioned earlier in the show, Ben, about face tracking. And this has been one of both exciting and not so exciting technologies of the last few years. And there's three use cases of face tracking. I'd like to dive deeper with you on the show and where the ethics may lie there around credit, around COVID, and around crime. We're going to go from least controversial to most controversial. So I think credit is probably uh, in the middle. So let's start with COVID. COVID has been something on everyone's mind, rightfully so. And we've seen recently that in South Korea, they've come up with robots that can do the face tracking to measure the temperature checks, contactless. And then if you have this, you know, COVID, then you have to be quarantined. What do you feel about face tracking for COVID prevention? Yeah, I mean, I think you've put me on the spot there a little bit. (laughs) So just to kind of caveat, I haven't spent a lot of time in my career thinking specifically about face tracking. I'm much more interested in um, autonomous moral agency machine ethics, as well as helping organizations with implementing what is now responsible AI. I'm doing air quotes, but equitable AI, responsible AI, transparent AI, that sort of thing. But The face tracking stuff is great because it's kind of like it's a microcosm of what is essentially a really big ethical quandary, which has positive and negative effects, and then the use of that technology. So it is really interesting and and really frightening in the same way. And we've been talking about this stuff in, um, I like to say science fiction, but kind of in culture for many, many years, um, 1984, uh, George Orwell all the way to um, lots of different science fiction and manga and anime and things like this who talk about these sorts of societies and, and what sorts of positive and negative aspects we could be producing. And in terms of the South Korea robots, I think you have to create trust. And if it is known that these machines are very, very good and work very well, and the information maybe doesn't really leave the robot in any meaningful way and always anonymized in all aspects and isn't actually restricting the citizen's mobility. You, you can't just get stopped in the street by one of these machines and you can't actually buy life-saving medicines for your partner, but because you're slightly hot, you've been stopped. There's all these kind of, kind of circumstances, let's say, associated with the sort of technology. And as long as we kind of appreciate that we've built something that actually really does work and works enough and knowing when it works enough is an ethical question. And then also allowing humans to be in the loop somewhere. So 
Again, I, I actually don't know fully. I've only read a short um, article about these robots, but I'm not sure fully how they operate in the world. But you can imagine that if you got stopped and you had some sort of way of recourse, I can imagine that it's a useful tool, you know? But if it's a computer says no situation and a squad of medically trained police uh, come down on you and all your citizens are scared to go outside, then that's not a good situation. So there's a nuance here in the context of using these sorts of technologies. And the other example you gave with the um, clear view stuff, it's unclear where the nuance is there. It's unclear where the buck stops and where we can actually have some sort of recourse. And that's the worrying thing for me. So the robots are much less worrying. But again, I don't know the full extent of their implementation. And again, if they have lots of uh, false positives, then that could be an issue and false negatives. Absolutely. Let's go into our next one. So what we've just talked about in robots, I think the big takeaway is humans need to be in the loop and the engineers who build these systems need to see what the different directions or outcomes can be and not like pigeonhole in humans into, well, this is your choice. No, there really isn't a choice. And I think that's what we see not only with COVID, but also with credit. In the last couple of years, it's been well publicized that China, which is a very state-owned enterprise country, has enabled a social scoring system. And the social scoring system is to help improve transactions and financial well-being in China. This means that if you purchase sugary drinks, perhaps you will be docked a few credit points. If you decide to go for a fantastic run in the park, you might gain a few credit points. So China is really about building good social policies and enabling a healthy society. This is from uh, China and the China government. So that's where I'm sharing this viewpoint. And this is all being done through face tracking technology as well, there's no opt-in, there's no opt-out. You are opt from day one. Where is your take on as we're moving maybe China towards that society or the rest of the world, how is face tracking seen for ethics as well with credit? Um, in an episode we ran on the Machine Ethics podcast, there was this question about the tracking in China happening, and it hadn't yet happened, but it was coming in, um, the Sesame system and the social credit system that you were talking about. And from what I've seen um, in my travels recently, it's something that's coming into the UAE as well. Um, so I've been to Dubai a few times in the last year, and my face is now held in a database with UAE, and I can actually get through the gates quicker, but at what cost, you know? Um, so it's, you know, where is the, the cost benefit there to, to me as a citizen and to us as a society? And the Chinese situation is is really different and a very um, broad implementation. So to operate within their society, you basically have to conform to certain rules. And part of this um, set of rules is to have a profile on the Sesame system and, and have your face tracked and have your biometrics tracked and all sorts of stuff. And there's lots of things I can say about how they're doing that well and badly technically and um, stupid things like leaving database open, databases open. And there's a story a couple of years ago about someone just finding a database of uh, Chinese uh, citizens on the internet because they just had the default database settings and it was just accessible, stuff like that. So obviously security is a big issue. But we all have this contract within um, our own societies with the government to 
conform to certain social norms, uh, legal norms. The obvious contradiction here is that the Chinese system seems to be very heavy-handed in its use of technology to implement those uh, social norms. We don't really have a a similar approach, I don't think, in the West. I mean, you could say that some of the the private companies, private entities, do a similar thing. We have to conform in a certain way to operate within their systems, and that's a kind of a peer pressure situation or a economic situation. But the the civil situation in China is a really different kind of experiment, and I think I think it's too heavy handed. I think there are other ways of doing a similar thing. Whether it's good or bad is debatable, but I think the way that they've used technology to create this kind of authoritarian set of rules is beyond what I think is appropriate as a Westerner, obviously, and as someone who cares about my autonomy and my autonomy within a digital world and the rights to be forgotten and my my right to kind of evolve as a person and not to have this history dragging me down of like things I might have looked at on the internet when I was 15, for example. And these are all kind of uh, potent issues. And I think the Chinese system is going to see a possible collapse when people start understanding what it actually means 10, 20 years down the, the road, where they can't actually be normal people who evolve in time and in experience um, in the same way necessarily because they're being tracked and because we have this data which is making a picture of what this person should be doing or shouldn't be doing. And again, that's kind of an abstraction away from whether you think it's right or wrong. I think it's an interesting experiment regardless. And I think it's probably, in my opinion, it's not a necessary experiment. I think there are other ways of doing similar things. So what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, what I'll share is something very contrarian, which is that we're seeing today, you know, China's done this Sesame credit system. And again, as you've shared, Ben, there's some pros and and some cons, especially from technology that need to be worked out. But my contrarian statement is that I think what Experian and Equifax have done in the United States with our credit system for decades has been quite similar with the tracking of transactions and the data, potentially not with the facial tracking just yet. So in fact, I would even go so far to say that China is only doing what's fair. They're playing catch up right now to be on par with the monitoring that we've seen in the United States. Mm, Yeah, I guess you're right. Uh, In a sense, it takes that model and takes it to the extreme, right? So if you're adding uh, face tracking to Equifax, you're saying that we don't just care about what you buy, but we also care who you see, where you go, how you feel. And I guess that's an extreme version of some tracking already exists in lots of places. So the extreme version of that is, are you going to see your grandma once a week? If you're not, you're a bad person, you know, and the government can do something about that. They can restrict you um, in ways which is hard to operate in a society. Are you are you a truant at school? Well, you can't be a truant at school because you can't go to the local leisure centre. You can't uh, actually go to a shop without getting picked up and taken home. Like there are the extreme. <laughs> the case of this is the worrying factor. Um, you know, do you actually have any choice within that society? In the extreme is uh, or autonomy. Is, is debatable if you're not following the, the line, obviously. So yeah, so that's where I'd say is taking some of these things and, and running with them and probably taking them too far because, again, it comes down to who's making the rules and whether the rules are appropriate for 
millions of people, millions of people we're talking about. So it's it's a big problem, I would say. And as we're talking about extreme action, let's get to our most extreme facial tracking scenario of these three, from COVID to credit to crime. Again, this has been mostly isolated in the United States, but with the killing of George Floyd, it has been the past you know, few weeks, and even as we're listening to the show into the future, it's been a moment of social change in the United States, but it has not been without violence. And it's been in different modalities. We've seen it from peaceful protesters. We've seen it from bad actor looters. And we've seen it from protesters who have felt helpless that they've become these rioters with these violent demonstrations. So we've seen multiple personas of people, and a lot of this has stemmed from the use of facial tracking. We've seen body cams on police officers in the United States. We've seen cell phone video footage of different crimes occurring. And George Floyd, of course, is not an isolated incident. This has been going on for decades systemically in the United States. But what I'm leading towards in this conversation is should we be moving to a world of face tracking for crime? Should we be moving towards a minority report type world? That's, of course, moving ever more extreme. But like, where do we stop when we go to face tracking with crime? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the the problem we have. It's it, Whether you think face tracking is good or bad, it's actually, that's the point. Where does the buck stop? And where isn't appropriate to use it? Um, for what purposes? Um, I think the policing use of face tracking, um, taking imagery and in real time relating it to a database, I think that's something which seems like the first step, right? So the idea here is that if we have this technology at all, and that's, again, debatable. We don't have to use it. It's just a technology. It's just a tool. Where are the low-hanging fruits for its use? And it might be said that um, policing or better policing is initially a low-hanging fruit situation. But equally, this this stuff can be used in any situation. So you could use it in shopping malls and things like that um, to track people who are shoplifting, to track people who are maybe happy or sad when they walk out of a shop. Um, to track people's reactions to items on their uh, store. There's lots of different kind of applications for this sorts of technology. So it's not just that we are tracking people's facial features and then relating them and, and trying to find out who they are. That's one big aspect of this, but we can really do lots and lots of different things. Uh, we can track people's gait and see if the shoes that they're wearing are affecting them and sell them coupons for new shoes. You know, those are things that we can just do like now. So that seems innocuous, right? But again, it's like you said, like, where does it stop? So I think there's been some conversation in the European Union about face tracking. And I know that there's been conversation in California and other places who have banned some, some face tracking situations. And it's really interesting because you have all these really good applications, all these really interesting applications. And then you have applications which then restrict people's rights or um, human rights. Um, and again, it might be that we have to kind of look at what human rights actually mean in the digital world, because obviously human rights were created, I think it was in the 50s now. So we have to be context specific about these things. But I think it's a slippery slope situation. Um, the, the police are using it to, what they say is, is to track citizens who are already under surveillance or have already been known to commit crime. 
and be able to track them in real time in the environment. And many people would say that that was a useful tool, but there is no there's no knowing how they are actually using it necessarily, but also what other uses that we could use for that same technology. So I am I am very fearful about um, people who can just look at technology and go, great, I can use it for X or Y instead. That is going to be a problem that I can see kind of being a real issue going into 2021, I think. Right, because how I'm hearing this from you, Ben, is that like, look, if we can face track citizens that's part of the problem or solution. But how about the big man? You know, should we be face tracking them as well? And what we've seen, at least in the United States and New York State, you know, as the whole movement around George Floyd and Black Lives Matter has continued to grow for social change. We've seen that in New York State, there's been talk to repeal something, a piece of legislation called 50A. 50A is a legislation that says that if a police officer has misconduct, that misconduct is sealed and never revealed to the public. Unlike congressmen and congress ladies, when they commit crimes, it's revealed to the public with names. The repeal of 50A says that these sealed documents on police brutality and the verdicts must be released to the public. So I think what I'm hearing consistent throughout the episode today is that trust is often a broken process and we need to set policies to re-enable trust and to re-enable ethics by design. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we want to live in a world where George Floyd or anyone who is discriminated against traditionally in a society can walk up to a police officer, can walk up to a person of power in that society and know that they are going to be trustful, (laughs) trustworthy, worthy of trust in any situation. You know, you, you don't want to be in a situation where you are in grave danger and you can't trust the own environment you can't trust your own you can't trust your own society that's not a world we want to continue to live in really so i think that repeal obviously sounds like a good one now taking everything that we've spoken about today and these are like huge topics that we could go even more in depth into i'd love to hear from your perspective as you've seen 2020 unfold with ethics overall what are some of the themes or aha moments that you're seeing in the near term, 2020, 2021, the midterm, 2025, and even like longer term, like Vision 2030? Yeah, so 21, um, there has been a wealth of interest in in ethics and technology and, uh, you know, in data science and machine learning and AI has just been an explosion, let's say, um, over the last three years. The interest in this area And some of that interest um, has been uh, rhetorical and not necessarily useful per se, but maybe it harnesses a conversation which is already happening, which is probably good. And some of it has been um, thought-provoking, very useful, and and the conversation at large is a useful one to have, I think. What I see at the moment going forward is an appreciation for what needs to happen and then the implementation of what needs to happen. At the moment, I feel like So three years ago, we were asking the questions. And now we've given up asking the questions because we have a lot of questions that we need solutions to. And now we are trying to produce solutions. So we are quite well versed in how a lot of these machine learning tools work, how we've traditionally used technology and implemented technology in in the digital world and how we designed and built. 
and now we really just have to kind of go, well, in these certain situations, it is you are legally required to do certain things. It is good to do certain things and you might consider these certain things. And I think going into 2021, we really should begin to the point where we have solutions that um, as a designer, as a data scientist, as a, as a business person, you can take and run with. And those are the sorts of kind of aims that I have within the community to really focus on. We've asked really good questions. We've had really good conversations. Now is the time to take those conversations into action. And I think I'm seeing that with the emergence of um, quite a few workshops and talks and um, conversations around AI uh, responsibility, transparency and diversity, equity and all these sorts of um, terms. Yeah, so next year, I'm I'm hoping that we'll be able to um, actually grab tools and, and frameworks and, and use them going forward into 2025, was it? Yeah, so into the future. Um, I am most interested in how the interaction of um, moral agencies appears in technologies that we actually use and within society's reaction to it. So obviously, the the easy example of this is um, automated cars. Um, there's been lots of uh, big conversation about automated cars for many years now, but we haven't really seen a general public acceptance of uh, cars on the road, automated cars on the road. So in 2025, I would imagine that we would start seeing a general kind of a normality of there being autonomous systems in the environment, not just in the virtual environment. So you might have autonomous algorithms that are doing certain things at Netflix or Amazon or these or Google and such, but autonomous uh, things that interact with us on a physical world or things that we have within our pockets and our phones and things like that, uh, more kind of general acceptance of moral autonomy. And there's really, really interesting aspects of that. Um, and there's a, a conversation I had on my podcast about social morality. So if you have a AI helper in your phone and it has some sort of uh, capacity to make decisions on your behalf, let's say, and it also has the capacity to kind of nudge you into certain behaviors, what is the moral agency of that device uh, and mm. who controls that and what kinds of things is it going to do? That's a really interesting question. If you have an AI uh, teaching assistant, what kind of a social moral agency is that going to have? Um, and all these sorts of questions are coming in as we start building this technology um, and as well, like the robots in South Korea or, or health robots. They have to do a job and they have to make their job um, worthwhile to citizens to actually have the robot in the first place. Is it going to be faster, more efficient, better, whatever it is, safer in terms of the, the car situation? But is it also going to make us feel good? Is it going to be able to give us autonomy back where it wasn't before? Is it going to be able to communicate to us in a way that we would like to be communicated to? Is it going to be noticing when we're sad? Is it going to be noticing when we're suicidal? All these sorts of aspects, which is, uh, for me, just very, very interesting. So um, I'm loving all that sort of stuff. And I think that's going to be much more important going into 2025 sort of time frame. And in past that, um, I couldn't speculate. It's just going to be a fascinating time. And, and I hope to be here talking and, and doing something in that environment. Well, those are some amazing trends that you've just shared some light on, Ben. And, you know, bringing it back to our audience and keeping everything uh, practical, you know, what call to action would you like to share with our listeners on the Humane Podcast today? 
Well, I, I would obviously, um, if I'm allowed to um, pitch, I'd like to say, you know, check out the website and the uh, podcast. So it's the Machine Ethics Podcast for more of these types of conversations about the um, just a lot of the ethics and also some technology stuff and some kind of uh, technical stuff to do with robots and um, the internet and things like that. Um, I think just be mindful. Um, I think, you know, you are not an island is a really good way of thinking about it. If you're producing some technology or you're you having producing something which is going to make people behave in a certain way, how are your parents going to feel about it? How are your grandparents going to feel about it? How are your children going to feel about it? Are you producing something for them which is going to be useful? Foremost, is it going to be safe and is it going to be is it going to be creating behavior that you want to see in the world? So be mindful. And there's this idea that as a technology person or as a developer or a designer, you know, I'm only a designer. I'm only a developer. You know, I can't think about all these things. I'm only, you know, I'm only the guy who who writes the code or whatever and gets told what to do. That has never been the case. You know, we all mm. have our autonomy and we all should be thinking about the things that we are doing and you should be empowered to think about what you are doing. So obviously it's easy for me to say on this podcast, but please be mindful of how you affect the world. Ben Byford, AI teacher, ethicist, and games developer, host of the Machine Ethicist podcast. Thanks for joining us on the Humane Podcast. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe, and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app, and tune in to more episodes of Humane. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.